turn. Um, but it's great to be with you. This is my first time preaching. Not ever. Irving was also one of my students. You could tell my students they're disruptive, typically, in their sermon. No, I love it, Irv Dog. Um, my first time preaching in like two and a half months. And I've been on summer break. I'm a full-time professor, as many of you know. So I have not been lecturing or teaching or utilizing my vocal cords in significant ways. So I've utilized them, but not in significant ways for quite a while. So this sermon today should be anywhere between 30 minutes to like an hour and a half. We'll see what happens. No, it's short. It's good to see everyone. It's good to be with you up here at the Norris. It's all, summer is getting there. It's getting closer to the end, right? I mean, my kids are bummed out about that. They were angry. They wanted to let, write a strongly worded letter to Target when they went in and saw that back to school section. Um, but we're, I don't know, as a parent, I'm feeling good about that. Some are coming to a close. I'm like, hallelujah, the Lord is working. The calendar is moving forward. Um, it's interesting when you think about this summer as a parent, has been a weird one. It's been a different one. We've like entered a new stage. Remember when, I mean, for those of you that, that have gone through the whole parenting journey, remember when you were like newly married or like fresh in a relationship before the kids, before all the double digits started hitting and like you'd be in a Trader Joe's. I remember Bray and I, so sweet, young, innocent, and kind of arrogant, right? We'd be in a Trader Joe's and a kid would be throwing a fit. And we're like, oh, Lord, Lord God, be with that child who is clearly not being parented properly. Let's pray that this child finds you, Jesus. Like this parent, you see a kid melting down in Target and you're like, oh, they should only have read Growing Kids God's Way. They would have avoided all this, or love and logic would really have helped them out in the circumstances, right? And then like Michelle comes along, and she's a two-year-old who sits there and reads her book and twirls her princess dress and takes long naps at age two. And now like all of a sudden, here I am, I have, you know, a one-year-old, my, my foster son, Franco, who, by the way, we are signing papers for adoption. It's happening, people! Yeah, baby. So in a few months, hopefully it'll be solidified. I got a two-year-old little Calvin, foster son Calvin, who is a delight and very much two-year-old. And I got a seven-year-old Brixton and a 10-year-old going on 18, Michelli, right? And like, I don't know how it happened or when it happened, but all my parenting ideas have just been thrown overboard. And I'm just like, how do we get to the end of the day? Like the the ambient noise in our house these days, it's like me becoming something of like a UN peacekeeper mixed with like a hostage negotiator and a totalitarian dictator, kind of going through sometimes a therapist and then back to dictator. It's just like, stop yelling! No more yelling in this house! But dad, you're yelling! Don't point that out, I'm your father! Family talks. Family gets complex. It gets really complex. A lot more fun, but a lot more complex. And as we've been in this letter of 1 Corinthians, what we've actually been doing is eavesdropping on a family conversation. A family conversation that has been going on. It's, we're hearing one side of it, which is from Paul of Tarsus, a brother in the Lord of these Corinthians, 
And they have been walking through a number of different challenges and problems and celebrations, trying to understand what does it mean to follow Jesus in the context of our family. And I don't know what I'm doing as a parent. I re- in so many ways, I don't. I'm glad to be at an intergenerational church like the one we are in, where there are folks everywhere from empty nesters in their 80s all the way down to, um, you know, Franco and Calvin and, and other kids in, in, the, in the nursery. We have this beautiful multi-generational church. So I get to watch y'all's life. I get to watch how you do it and how you parent. So I've been loving that. But personally, I don't know what I'm doing sometimes. And more and more so, it feels like, Lord, what am I doing? But one of the principles that we really do believe and try to remind ourselves and our kids of quite a bit is that if we can't love well at home, how are we going to expect to love well outside? If we can't love each other in the context of messy, close proximity family, how are we going to expect to do so in the marketplace, on the streets, in the broader communities that we live and function in? And I think that's exactly the point that Paul of Tarsus is reminding these Corinthians of and insisting on is, hey, y'all, if you can't love and follow Jesus well in the context of our church family, how are we going to do it in all of the other spaces of our lives? And so this letter, which is one of the longer ones Paul writes, is going sort of piece by piece, moving back and forth from big top shelf theological truths to nitty gritty details of how then we should live in light of big fat truths and everything in between. And what we've noticed, and I just want to bring this up as we move into chapter 14, which is the subject matter or the text uh, focus today, is that between all of the seemingly disconnected issues that Paul is dealing with in this letter, there is actually a great consistency of a problem. The same problem, the same melody is being played out in different keys over and over again throughout this letter. And that problem that we seem to notice, and we talked about it early on when we started this series, I think it's good to just remind ourselves, is that these Corinthians, which were a vast minority as Christians in a polytheistic uh, empire of 60 million people, they may be... Christians populated about 0.01% of that population at the time this letter is written. So these little Christians, and I say little meaning there's not a lot of them, are trying to figure out how then do we live. And they didn't just fall down from heaven, or they weren't baptized and they come up squeaky clean and cultural influences, old habits, life mottos are suddenly washed away And they are given new ones, new programming, and it's all good. Those of you that have ever trusted Jesus, right? You're like, what happened? I thought everything bad was supposed to stop and I'd become an angel. And it's like, well, you got to read the Bible. That ain't how it works. You still have the culture, the background, the history, and a lot of the teachings that you've grown up with that need addressing and reminders of what what you know in Christ reminding yourself again and again. And he's doing this with these Corinthians who, probably the most sought-after 
cultural capital, the most sought-after um, achievement for someone living in that world was indeed to be honored, was status, was recognition, public recognition of their value. We might think of it in terms of coolness or likes on Instagram. Lord, forgive us. Or um, we might think of it in terms of just broader social status and power. We like that. It's, we're into it as our culture. They were super into it. It was their thing. And what happens is, in this letter, Paul deals with the way that that ugly monster manifests itself in different corners and categories of their life together. So, for example, in the first four chapters, if you recall, Paul has to push back and sort of hit in the shins this idea that it matters that you're well-born. Well, I was well-born. I'm, I'm, no, I'm of nobility. Oh, yeah, well, I, I'm a great speaker. I'm eloquent, so I'm, I'm kind of important, maybe more so than these people. Or, well, I was with Paul first. I was with Apollos. I was with Cephas. And there's all these divisions, and those aren't just random doctrinal divisions. Those are divisions based on people lining up, trying to get to the front of the line, going, I'm what it's about. And it's because that's how they were raised to behave. Be competitive. Cut throat. Make sure you and your family, your personal family, are showcased. And so Paul kind of pushes back on that, saying, let's go back to that tool of Roman execution, of shameful slaves' deaths that our God Messiah died on, and let's remember what that does to your pride. Let's remember what that cross does to your scratching for status. It flips the whole thing upside down, if you recall. And then chapter 5, there's a problem with some weird sin going on in the church. Not PG-13 situation happening with one individual who is kind of just, he's weird. Just read it, check it out. But he's kind of untouchable. People are afraid to really call him out on it because maybe he's the big donor. Maybe he's kind of important outside. And it's like, hey, you know, he's in our church. He's kind of a big deal. Let's just hope this goes away. And Paul's like, hey, if you can't do it in here, if you can't figure out how to have accountability in our house here, how are you going to do it anywhere else? And so he calls them on that. Chapter 6, they're dealing with lawsuits between believers. This isn't the kind of boring legalese law courts that we might think about in our day and age. This is a public forum of basically ad hominem shaming of one another, making, making the uh, character assault on whoever you're against. That's how Roman courts worked. And so Paul's going, y'all are bringing each other out into these courts and shaming one another? This is ridiculous. It needs to stop. In other words, if we can't love well together, we can't expect to do it anywhere else in our relationship. And it goes on. I mean, chapter 11 deals with sort of status eating and food practices. Jazz brought the word to us on that. Um, Once we get to chapter 13, which Denise, one of my life and ministry heroes, right? Denise Windorf, come on now. Love her. She preached a sermon on 1 Corinthians 13 that unpacked Paul's antidote to the disease infecting the Corinthians. What was that antidote? Love. 
love, baby, agape love. And it wasn't this fluffy, ill-defined, amorphous kind of feeling you get when the sun sets love. It was defined specifically and rigorously. And who do you think that love looked like after being defined? Who does that, who does that love look like? Any ideas? Sunday school answers? Jesus! One Sunday school, one church kid in here at least. The answer, just in case you're not aware, is always Jesus, okay? If, the, if a pastor asks you a question. The love looks like Jesus. So Paul gets to 13. I just want you to see, he's not hopscotching through random issues. Hey, let's talk about this now. New topic, let's talk about this now. Instead, he's addressing the same disease, the same uh, damaging impulse that's showing up in this way, that way, this corner, and that corner. So that's what's happening. By the time we get to chapter 14, it turns out he's dealing with the same underlying problem that was in all these other chapters, only this time, it's a little more sneaky. This time, that problem is wearing church clothes and church shoes. Anyone remember church shoes? Remember those? Anyone grow up and you had to wear church shoes? Let's see some hands out here, people. Let's see. Yeah, church shoes. It was never fun shopping for church shoes. When mom's like, we're going to buy some church clothes, you're like, oh man. It's a way of showing that you love Jesus by injuring your feet in these terribly painful and ugly things that for some reason you wear at church. Mary Janes. Okay, yeah, those bite your instep, those Mary Janes, right? You do it, Mary, yeah. Last dance with Mary Janes for me. I don't know, I'm just riffing now. It's spoken word poetry. The, um, the problem is churchy. It's nice and sanitary and churchy. It's as if the Corinthians have figured out a way, and I'll get to the text in a minute, to do the same game but to kind of tag Bible verses onto it, to kind of smell like a church bulletin a little bit more, right? To, to kind of put Jesus in it and then act the same way they've always been acting, which is competitive, which is thinking of themselves at the expense of others, which is playing all the same games they've always played their whole lives. They found Jesus, they saw hope and truth and life, and they're living in it, but that that small voice and sometimes loud voice of what they have always done in their life starts calling them. And they go, hey, I can now do this and my church clothes. Right? So what I'd love to do, if we could, is I want to read a part of chapter 14. It's rather lengthy. And, um, and there are some interesting pieces that if you want to talk more about later, I'd be happy to. I want to read part of the chapter, summarize a portion of it, before then excavating, I think, the big, fat point that applies both to church life, because that's the subject of the chapter directly, but also the big, fat point that applies to uh, what it is to be human, why the heck you are alive and breathing and perceiving and um, existing together. So that's the goal. So if you want to, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 14 and... um, And if you want to just listen, that is how indeed these texts were first consumed, by listening. So you're in good company with your ancient ancestors in the faith, if you just listen. Or read, or both. 
Chapter 14. He's going to begin by comparing these things he calls gifts. These gifts. It's it's charismata. These things that are like uh, concrete grace gifts that God gives you. Abilities, empowerments, opportunities to serve and love and, and, and contribute. He says this. Fresh off of chapter 13, the love chapter. He says, follow the way of love. And earnestly desire the gifts of the Spirit. Follow the way of love. That is the bright line trajectory that we are on. And again, it's not ill-defined love. Read chapter 13. That's what love looks like. Follow that way and go ahead and desire gifts of the Spirit. Especially prophecy. Especially prophecy. And we're not talking here, as you'll see, about like I see a bright future for you, and you will meet many good people and have adventures. Beware of those who are, you know, and it's like that's not the prophecy we're talking about in general. Prophecy is, um, should be thought more of as speaking God's word to God's people. It's, it's kind of cutting through the scubula. That's a technical term Paul uses, 1 Corinthians 3. Bull scubula might help you understand what that word is. Cutting through the scubula. And getting to the truth. It's speaking truth to power. It's speaking truth sometimes not as filtered as we might like. It's saying the hard thing and sometimes saying the really encouraging thing. So that's what prophecy is, speaking God's word to God's people. But the, uh, he says, especially seek the gift of prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. He's, he's going to do this comparison between prophecy, the gift of prophecy, and the gift of what we might call tongues, or scholars call it glossolalia. Everyone say glossolalia. Isn't that fun? Doesn't that make you feel good? Glossolalia. I want to say that more often in my life. So the gift of tongues here. And it's defined uh, somewhat. We see a picture of it in Acts chapter 2 as well. It seems to be uh, this prayer, a praise utterance that is not in discernible human language, or at least it's it's not in a language that most people around understand. Okay, so it's it's speaking forth and worshiping and praying in such a way that it's just like uh, I think of it like reckless abandonment to just kind of, I'm praising God and I'm doing it in this, using this gift that God gives you to be able to speak to him in this interesting, um, non-decipherable language uh, or naturally decipherable. So that's what tongues seem to be, kind of this ecstatic prayer language um, uh, manifestation. And prophecy, which is speaking God's word to God's people. And he's going to compare the two and check out the comparison. He says, Seek prophecy, for anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. And he's, it's a good thing to talk to God. He's not bashing that. He says, but no one understands them, for they utter mysteries by the Spirit. But he who prophesies, or the one who prophesies, speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. So the, the comparison that's being made here has to do with when y'all are together. When it's not just you in the room or you and one other person. When it's the group, the gathering, the community together. Follow the way of love and seek prophecy over tongues. Why? 
Because if you're speaking in tongues, it's not going to be the most good to the most people. It's going to help you out a lot. It's going to make it a lot more about you, which is, it's fine to edify and all that. But it's going to leave a bunch of people scratching their heads going, what did he just say? Is everyone okay over here? What's happening? What is that? So he says, um, the one who prophesies speaks for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the whole church. Now, we like to, sometimes if, uh, if you grew up in more of a Pentecostal or charismatic background, you may be familiar with tongues, have been around it. If you like me, you grew up in a kind of Reformed Baptist sort of tradition um, where it's sort of like all that stuff is not maybe real, it's probably dead, we don't know. This is where you normally stop reading the verse. You're like, okay, stop there. No more, Paul. We're good. Just leave tongues off and we'll do prophecy. And by that we mean teach the word or something. But look what Paul does with it. He stops. Anyone speaks in tongues edifies themselves, but he who prophesies edifies the whole ecclesia, the gathering, the church. Verse 5. I would like for every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. And you might be thinking, oh, cool, if you're a Corinthian, that's greater? You mean that's better? Okay, I want to do that then. I want to do the best, biggest, most attention-getting thing. Uh Oh, watch what he does. He says, if you prophesy, it's better. Why? So that the church may be edified. In other words, the whole group. The idea of prophecy, why it's better in the gathered context, is because it's Caring for more people, not just you. And he goes on, Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what good will it be to you unless I bring some revelation or I bring some knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? And Paul uses the analogy of instruments playing off rhythm and all messed up. Anyone in a junior high band? Any junior high band members? Like, you, you're like, the drums are completely disorganized and crazy. The guitar amp is as loud as it could be, and it's chaotic, and the bass is just doing the bassist thing. The hair is perfect, right? Junior high band. Like, what is that noise? It's a junior high rock band. Paul uses that to say, if y'all are speaking in tongues, and everyone's kind of speaking over each other, and one person's prophesying, but then everyone else is speaking in tongues... It's just a crazy kind of disorganized thing that no one's benefiting from. It's really not helping anyone but the person speaking, which isn't, he emphasizes the point. And I'll get through this technical piece in a minute. He says, so it is with you, since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. So again, Why is Paul having a problem with their public or uh, community use of tongues? Not because it's weird, but because it's not bringing the biggest benefit to the most people. So he says, let's just make sure our heads are on straight when we come into the community. And it goes on with a number of other items. Um, I think kind of a summary statement in 26. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up or edified. It's kind of a churchy term, edified. It just means kind of built up, equipped, and strengthened. And then for the rest of 27 to 40, he goes to specific application points for that community. 
So it's sort of like what we do in our, in our sermons here. We, we normally end at some point with some application. Like, okay, River Church, what does this look like in our world, in our realities, in our family together? The headline, even though I don't think the River Church has an issue with people trying to speak in tongues over one another. I mean, sometimes at Norris, right, we're like a little quiet as it is. We're like, hello, Norris, hello, Norris. Right, we're not exactly struggling with chaos in our service up here. It's not the case always at the beach when, like, the airplane banner's going and the dude in the Brazilian, you know, Speedo's running by and the, air, the craziness. I was chased by a bee this morning. I'm a survivor of bee attack. A little, ca- a little crazier down there. We don't really have a lot of problems in, in this community, so it's easy to kind of bottle this up and go, that's kind of fun and interesting and academic. Maybe I'll teach you about it in a class someday, but for now, let's move to the good stuff. But I think when you actually look at the, the underlying issue here, it's profoundly practical. It actually invites us to rethink this thing we call church. What is it for? If the Corinthians were born and raised in the context of a Roman colony in the Mediterranean of the first century, if that is indeed their reality, which it is, they were born and raised with anthems, metaphorical and literal, with cultural values and social codes, with bedtime stories, heroes and villains, politics, imagery, sound, smell, theater, all things that were infused with the line, distinguish yourself. Or the line, know your place if you're not distinct. So the the urge and the hunger for popularity, for coolness, to be seen, to be seen as better than, even in, which was about 20% or maybe more of the population, even among the slave population in Rome, there, you would still see in, in inscriptions and other evidence for competition for particular statuses. So it wasn't just a rich dude thing. It was going on all throughout the community of the, the world they lived in. If that impacted them, do we think we're not here in the church in our church shoes going to be impacted by the dominant anthems of the world we live in? Absolutely we're going to. And I think it does not take a lot to recognize we are all in a highly individualistic and market-driven consumer culture. And everything is vying for our attention. And everything is asking us, especially with the uh, paradigm-shifting social media reality that has happened in the last 10 years, everything is asking us, define yourself Who are you? What is your status right now? The quest that many of us are on is a quest for personal fulfillment. By us, I mean just humans in our culture. And that's going to be in our heads, and it's going to be in our world, and it's going to have an influence in the way we even think about church often. Let me give you a few examples. Examples I am guilty of too. So I'm not trying to beat the pulpit here over your heads. I'm trying to remind all of us some things. What is the point of church? The question that can often be asked. Did you get anything out of the sermon today? I mean, I've asked that question a million times. What did I get out of it today? Am I really getting stuff? Am I really being fed? 
right? That, that whole metaphor of being fed. I mean, I was really fed today. Oh, I was, that was a, eating some meat today. It's a very church thing to say. Not a vegan thing either. Eating an impossible burger of theological reflection. I don't know. It doesn't work the same. And so the question is, how, what am I getting today? Was it good? I mean, in Corinth, they were talking about 0.01% of the world were Christians. You could not just go next door or down the street or down the other street and find churches and find groups to plug into. It's like the only show in town. So if they don't get it right there, it ain't going to get right anywhere. And we can so often treat church like it's this thing for me and my personal little nuclear family. And if it's really blessing me and blessing my family, then let's keep going. Or even think about church staff or think about church services as like, are you meeting my needs? Am I getting what I need out of it? Or here's another one that's easy to miss when we think about church. Church is, we often think, a sermon, worship, and that's really kind of the main thing. Maybe some communion, maybe a little meet and greet, and that's church. So if I didn't get that, I didn't get church today. And this can be a challenge when we think about like serving in children's ministry or other places, because it could be the sense of, oh, I missed out. I missed out. How many of y'all serve in children's ministry here? I know a few of you in here. Got some children's ministry. Yeah, some amazing, amazing human beings here. What I want to say, I'll talk to the Ingans real quick. Ingans, when you invest in my beautiful 10-year-old baby girl, and when you invest in her life, and you miss the sermon, you miss the worship, you don't get to say hi to a lot of people up here. You didn't miss church. I know you know this. You didn't miss church. You churched. You seriously church. You invested in actually doing church. When our perspective is recalibrated according to at least these scriptures, Paul's saying again and again, it's not about you. It's not about you getting all filled up, getting the warm fuzzies, leaving feeling better about yourself. Some of you in this room, you've spent services, entire church services, in the lobby praying for someone or in the back. Helping someone through something. You didn't hear the message. You barely could tell what the preacher was wearing. It's a Diet Coke hat, by the way. Sponsored by them. I have to wear it. I have to. No, I'm not sponsored. I wish I was. Save me some money. You didn't miss church by investing in caring for someone that was needing some care. You churched. You seriously churched. You actually got the point of churching. Because when we go into the community, and it's not just about Sunday. You all know that. It's about all through the week, all the things we're in. The River Church, we have this vision of like being reverse tributaries. We sort of run in this pack together, I guess, this current. But then we go all out into all our different highways and byways of our lives. And we want to bring the love of Jesus in those places. When you're invested and you're asking the question, what can I bring? How can, I, how can I serve more? You're, you're thinking exactly right. And so for, for us, I don't think people are scrambling to get to the microphone to dominate the service. We don't have a lot of that. What we do probably have more of because of our cultural disposition is, what am I getting out of it? Did I really need to be there today? Did it really do anything for me? Well, your presence actually might have been important for someone that needed some encouragement or even just a hug or an opportunity. 
<clears throat> knowing your purpose. So I speak this out, and it's like Denise said in her love sermon. It's like I'm speaking to some heavyweight champions of the world when it comes to serving and giving. Truly. I mean, I can tell you in this service, in, in, in the beach service, and in the communities that call the river home at least, I really think service is something we thrive on. We really do. And it's beautiful. And so this is like a halftime locker room, rah, 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 where I'm saying that was a great first half. Let's go out there and leave it all on the field. The sermon title, Going for Broke. Going for broke. I think that's Paul's major point. Go for broke. There's this picture of Jesus. The last point, go for broke. What I want to call the purpose of life. Go for broke. Terrible personal finance advice. Exactly the point of your life. Go for broke. Jesus, towards the end of his life in Mark 10, you don't have to turn there, I'll just quickly share it. He's heading towards a Roman cross. It's in his future. He knows it. He's going for broke. He's going for broke with his body, with his life, with his, with his image, his social persona. All of it's going to be cashed in on that cross. And he's with his disciples who have been with him, watched him laugh, cry. And a couple of them, still under the sort of influence of their culture ask, hey Jesus, you know, when you come into your messianic glory, when it's ticker tape parade time for you, Jesus, could I be like right here at your right and my brother at your left? We'd love to just be there with you in the place of honor, in the spotlight, baby, honor and shame. Mediterranean melody playing all over the empire. Here it shows up, his disciples. And Jesus, he basically shuts it down a little bit. He goes, okay, let me talk about that. What it's gonna, where I'm going. You know, I don't think you understand where I'm heading right now. And then secondly, all the disciples, the others get upset at them. How dare you? Oh, I wanted to ask Jesus first. You punks, you got ahead of me in line. And Jesus stops him with these words. He said, verse 42 of Mark 10, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the nations, Rome and all the important people therein, They love to lord it over those they rule. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. He's using master-slave language here or high society, upper stratum, under stratum language. Whoever wants to be first must be the slave to all. Why, Jesus? Why? For even the Son of Man, speaking of himself, did not come to be served, served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Where are we going as we follow Jesus? We are going for broke. We are going for broke. That's actually the wild-eyed, crazy, audacious call that you jump into when you say, I want to follow Jesus. Where's he going? He's heading 100 miles an hour to broke. He is investing lavishly in a prodigal fashion all he has for others, for the sake of others. And he's not just doing that saying, y'all don't have to do that, though. That's something that the big boys do. I got this one. It's on my tab. He says, no, this is what it's going to mean to follow me. If you're running after me, you're running after serving and investing. Go for broke. And it's interesting. I wrote, and I'm closing with this um, very personal Family reflection. So some of you that are um, 
with us for the first time uh, or, or maybe second time or something like that, welcome to family dinner, I guess. And we're having a, a real family conversation, or at least monologue at this point, on, uh, with you here. And we're glad you're here. But I wrote on a blurb on Tuesday. I wrote that blurb. How many of y'all read that, by the way? Anyone read that? You get extra credit in heaven if you do, by the way. You get like a roster and, no, you buy a toy. Go for broke, I wrote. Terrible advice in personal finance, exactly the point of 1 Corinthians 11 through 14. Denise, one of my ministry and life heroes, absolutely nailed it two weeks ago in her sermon on love in 1 Corinthians 13. In it, she reminded us of a C.S. Lewis quote that I can't stop thinking about, writing this on Tuesday. Nothing, C.S. Lewis quote, nothing you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing you have not given away will ever really be yours. It sounds so contradictory, so paradoxical. And for any one of us who have tried the tight-fisted, self-interested route to happiness, it's so true. That's my last reflection there, so true. This idea of going for broke just kept coming to me. And I haven't preached for a month and a half. And every time I preach, God's like, I got something for you, James. I want to help you with this a little bit. And he makes you live into it. He does. I'm telling you. He does. Bill, you know what I'm talking about? As you all know, I've been a foster parent. We've been foster family for a couple, uh, I'm a, year, a year and a half now, something like that. And, um, and we had a huge hearing on Thursday. I wrote this on Tuesday, huge hearing on Thursday for, for our son. And, I, and I, part of me is like, don't share this. It's just your life. And Brian and I just felt like, no, I can't, I can't preach fake. I can't like sit up here and be like, let's talk about Jesus and good, nice things and then move on and keep it really disconnected from who we are. At the River Church, we believe in authenticity. We believe every preacher needs to run it through their lives as well. And so here I am. I just, that's the caveat, I suppose. But for 10, month, Cal, 10 months, Calvin's been part of our family. I love him. I love him as my boy. I, love, I die for him. I take a bullet for him. I take a shiv for him. I love that little guy. And we're going into court, and everything seems to be dr- looking really good for a positive, long-term placement for him with us. Positive, healthy. I'm not just saying that as like a selfish parent. I am a selfish parent. I'm saying that as like, that's exactly what I, I know is the healthy thing. And we're going in, and we knew anything can happen in court. You always know that. Anything can happen. And when we started as foster, foster adopt, we wanted to adopt, and we wanted to do it through foster adopt because of the 30,000 kids in care. Many of them, Caitlin, is lavishly investing in, in huge ways. You need to get coffee with her sometime and hear what's, what, what Jesus is doing at the crossroads of hopelessness and despair and institutional injustice. She is right there. So we wanted to do something about that. And you always hear the story, well, you know, I mean, it's, it's not nothing certain, and there's a high likelihood, you know, they might get taken away, or at least a likelihood. And I'm like, yeah, but bad things only happen to other people. So it's not, not to worry about that. Sort of secretly in my mind. And I'm loving Calvin, and I'm loving Calvin, and we're loving Calvin, and we potty trained the kid. There should be an award, for, there should be a medal for foster parents that potty train, by the way. A medal. A parade, maybe. And I love him deeply. And we go into court, and everything was looking very good. And within like 10 minutes, and you have no voice in court as a foster parent, you sit, you sit back and, and you have to watch. And you can say nothing. 
for about 10 minutes in one of the more mechanical legalese things I've seen, it started just kind of turning the other direction for almost no discernible reason. And we leave the court and it's like looking very much the other direction. We have, we have them um, probably through, through October and maybe more. It might be a longer thing and we're not talking to our kids necess- about this necessarily because anything can happen. Anything does. Foster care is a crazy, beautiful thing. But we leave the, the room and we get into the car. We like almost don't talk down the stairs. And I'm so angry in the car. I'm so mad at the fact that there are 30,000 kids languishing and we want to talk about everything else politically but that. I'm mad that there's people that are supposed to represent this kid that I feel like it's not happening. I'm mad because like I've invested 10 months into this child. I want him at my funeral. I want to, I want to give him, I want to preach his marriage sermon. I want to do all that with this beautiful baby that I love. I'd give my blood for. And it's like, okay, that, that just in that fast suddenly started moving quickly in a different direction. And, and I'm so angry. And Brace just, we're crying, we're sitting, we're shaking, we're in shock. And it was like on Thursday, driving home on the 710, the Holy Spirit of God spoke, not audibly, but impressed on both of us. Are you listening now? Are you listening? Here's what he, I, I swear, the impression we continue to get. Will you love Calvin unconditionally? Will you love him even if you gain nothing, even if you suffer everything? Will you love him unconditionally? That's number one. And number two, will you love him today? You have a day with him. Today. And your head has been so far in the future. I wasn't going to say that. So far in the future, wondering, scheming, hoping, praying, running through scenarios in your head, afraid, frustrated that you've missed out on the fact this beautiful boy is with you right now, today. And so it's like, I I wrote this sermon, Go for Broke. And here's the secret. This is why I'm sharing it. And it's like, I'm at 42 minutes now. That's great. I'm shutting it down, I promise. Here's why I'm sharing this story. This is not some sneaky way of being like, look at how holy and nice the the pastor is. He's a foster parent. Boy, oh boy, he suffers. Because believe me, and you can ask our friends, the Watsons who are here, they're also a foster family. Being a foster parent puts a spotlight on the worst parts of who you are. Your contingent love, your impatience, your fear. Oh my gosh, your fear. It puts all the spotlight on it. So I'm not sharing it for that reason. Here's the reason I'm sharing it. And it's a secret that many of you know. When you, and I'm, I'm experiencing and I have experienced, when you live beyond yourself, and I've never done it like this in my life before, when you live beyond yourself and you serve beyond yourself, you suddenly experience what it means to be alive. Why you were made. When you're following Jesus, going for broke, and I'm not just saying it as a nicety, I'm really saying it. I'm more convinced in this moment than I've ever been this is the only place we're made to be, and it's the only place that God gives true life, is when our hands are open to say, God, dump it on me, dump the blessings on me, because I want to unload it as fast as I can. And he keeps dumping, and we unload, and he keeps dumping. It's a beautiful thing. So I guess what I'm saying today, one as a family is, thank you for your prayers and your investment in Calvin's life. You are part of his family, and you always will be, regardless of where he is living and where he's at. And number two is just go for broke. It's, it seems kind of scary, and God will trick you into it. He will trick you into it. 
And when you're there, you wake up and go, this is beautiful. And Caitlin, your investment in these girls' lives that you have no idea where it's going to turn is so not wasted. And we are behind you and we are, so, you are, we are with you with like ticker tape and glasses of water and going, just go, Caitlin, go. She's going for broke. Many of you are going for broke. I just want to encourage you, let's do that as a church. It ain't about us. It ain't about a nice, squeaky, clean church service. It ain't about getting all your amenities. And I'll stop at 45 minutes. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this church. Thank you for a family I could talk to like this as a pastor without feeling too weird about it. God, thank you for your, your example. You went ahead of us going for broke. We love you. We desire that as well. In Jesus' name, amen.